And then we'll open it up uh, to you folks to pursue our question. And the question we're looking at today is, you know, we've got this lovely title, From the Neolithic Era to the Apocalypse, um, How to Prepare for the Future by Studying the Past. And that's true. That's what we're going to talk about. But, you know, it really is, you know, uh, I think, uh, um, to quote the Paso Passover Seder, in every generation there arises one who says the past doesn't matter. And we're here to see if we think that's true now, that there are, in fact, a large number of voices, particularly amongst those, uh, some of whom might, may have been educated here at MIT, who are technological optimists, who think that the you know, enormous changes that we've genuinely seen in technology recently do, in fact, represent a qualitative break with the past, as well as, obviously, a quantitative change in human capacities to ma manipulate their surroundings. So that's what we're going to talk about. Does the past still matter? The people I'm going to be talking with, people who, who are going to be leading all of us through this, this set of questions that, that emerge from that, that larger thought, um, are Charles C. Mann and Annalee Newitz. Uh, Charles is um, a, a, one of the, the sort of signature science writers of my generation, at least. Um, I think he's best known for his book, 1491, very highly regarded for his more recent book, 1493, two investigations about the state of the world, really, just before and just after um, European contact with the New World. I won't say discovery, because, of course, there were people here already who knew that the New World was not so new to them. Um, he is currently at work on a, on a project, The Wizard and the Prophet, a book about the future that makes no predictions whatsoever. And um, an early version, uh, you know, j just to show how much of a leap he's getting on the rest of us, an early version of that, of the introductory chapter to The Wisdom of the Prophet, was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. Uh, Annalee Newitz writes science nonfiction and science fiction. Uh, she is the founding editor of io9. She comes from the future. Um, and she is currently the editor of Gizmodo, which I'm sure many, everybody knows about. Wonderful blog about technology and its contents and discontents. Um, she is the author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction, which was a finalist for the New, uh, Los Angeles Times Book Award. And uh, she has uh, a PhD that she told me not to trot out uh, from the University of California uh, in English literature, yes? American studies. American studies. Um, I should know that. My, uh, and aside, my cousin had the single best academic title in all of the American Academy. He was the Edgar Allan Poe Professor of American Studies at the University of Virginia. It does not get better than that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Annalise's writing has appeared in The New Yorker and Technology Review. It's appeared in 2600 and Lightspeed Magazine. She covers the universe. And her next book coming out, I hope, next year, yes, soon, is a novel about robots, pirates, and the future of property laws. Please join me in giving a welcome to Charles and Annalee. Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's start talking. Annalee, I want to start with you, if I could. All right. Um, and I want to go back to something that I sort of teased in, in, in the remarks I just made, which is. Uh, we hear a lot, I think, these days that this time it's different, that, that you know, there have been so many changes in human experience from machines to our, our uh, ways of living that 
the future is really deriving itself from the present, and the past doesn't have much to say about it anymore. And uh, just as a sort of big, wide-open question, do you believe that? No, obviously. And that's part of the premise of, I think, what we're going to be talking about a lot tonight. Um, I think, I mean, as people who write about history, I think one of the things that we grapple with is the fact that history is incredibly complicated. Um, you know, one person's ideal history, you know, is another person's history of persecution and slavery. Um, and I think that's the thing about the future as well. And I think, in fact, one of the biggest lessons from history that we can learn and apply to the future is that there is no one future. Uh, as William Gibson has said, you know, one person's dystopia is another person's utopia. And they can be happening at the same time. You know, there could be a future where some of us are, have become light-filled beings who live forever, and we've done it by enslaving half of the planet, and they get to like, live diseased, short lives uh, without education and healthcare. And those I, are- I saw that movie. I, I think we all, we've all seen versions of that movie. I mean, you know, and we've seen Mad Max. Hopefully, you've all seen Mad Max. So you, you know basically the outline of the future at that point. Um, and I think one of the um, impulses is always to not have the future be complicated and not have the past be complicated either, right? Like we'd love just like a perfect narrative where we start in one place and there's perfect progress. You know, we get the printing press and then we get knowledge and then the enlightenment and then yay, computers and everything's great. And of course, that's not how history works at all. And um, the future, of course, is, is also not simple like that. And there's still this urge, especially right now, I think because uh, there's so much uncertainty about what is coming next. Um, you know, we want to have either, I think, an apocalypse, because an apocalypse is super simple and, and kind of fun, um, or we want to believe, um, or, or I should say some people want to believe, that we're in the middle of what has been kind of dubbed a long boom, where we're all going to become wealthier and our lives will get better and you know, everything will gradually improve in some definition of improvement which we've derived from like Western democracy. And um, you know, that's obviously not how history has worked. Uh, things haven't just smoothly uh, gone in any one direction. Um, and so I think what, what I'd like us to think about tonight or what I kind of struggle against in my work too is this kind of um, strand of thinking that comes from sort of black swan ideas about the future, that the future is molded by unexpected events that you can never predict or plan for. Those events do happen. I'm not saying they don't. Um, but there are many things that we can plan for. And when I say many things, I really mean things, like there's many possible futures. There's many futures that will be going on at the same time. And so I think we need to kind of veer away from thinking of the future as simply uh, heading into a terrible place or heading into this you know, wonder of post-scarcity awesomeness. Um, but at the same time, uh, to finish, what I would say is that just to make the future even more complicated for you uh, and just to make history even more complicated, you know, I've been saying that, well, you know, there is this way that we can learn from the past because it is so complicated and because there's so many experiences that, that make up history. But at the same time, and, and that's something that we share with the present and something that the future will continue to, to exhibit. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as many historians have noted, um, one of the greatest forms of difference that you can experience as a person is to contemplate what it was like to live at another historical time. 
that is the most radical form of difference because people who lived in other times, in other cultures, did not share our worldview. They had very different um, assumptions, very different ideologies, different religions. Um, and so we have to respect that when we think about history and also when we think about the future, that there is this radical break. And so there's all these commonalities that we share. There's precedence in history for many of the things that we're going through, including things like climate change and increased mobility around immigration, even things like techno overload. There's historical precedence for that too, which hopefully we can talk about. Um, but at the same time, there is, this, there is this break. And so we have to, as I said, respect that history is a different place. And you know, as we move into the future, um, you know, there will be this, these kind of unexpected new vistas, but always connected to what I think we've seen before. Yeah, there's that, that lovely now cliche, but it's a great cliche that you know, the, the past is a, a foreign country. They do things differently there. Um, Charles, if I can sort of ask you the same question I asked Anna Lee, but with a little bit of, uh, of a, a twist to the screw. I mean, there are reasons to believe that we are living in uh, perhaps not an exceptional, uh, you know, an exceptional era, but certainly an extraordinary one. I mean, there is, uh, there are, you know, secular trends for the better that that, that various people have noticed. You know, the uh, radical reduction in extreme poverty just in the last 15 years. Um, you know, really unprecedented abilities to manipulate living things at very fine scales. Um, machines, the human-machine interaction, all these things have changed, you know, enormously um, in in what's historically certainly a very short time scale, whether you date it from, you know, the end of World War II or, you know, um, uh, you know the uh, Henry Adams at the Dynamo at the World's Fair in 1900, wherever you want to sort of put the line, this is, this is very much not the kind of world that some of the futurists of the past that we revere, uh, you know, the, the, the first science fiction writers would have recognized. So um, accepting what Annalie just said about the importance of the past and the, the, the complexity of the past and the sort of persistence of the past, how much weight would you put on the idea that, well, yeah, maybe this time it is at least a bit different? Well, I guess I would say that Every era is different, right. right? There you are in 1600, which we think of as the past, and their lives have been completely changed. If you live in Europe, this huge amount of money is just dumped into your lap from the conquering the Americas, vast quantities of silver, and suddenly Europe, which has been this sort of podunk place, is sitting on top of the world. It's a dramatic change in every aspect of their lives. And they're looking at it and they're thinking, nothing like this has happened before. And I think you could go on and on. Every era is unique. So the question really starts starting, well, is this sort of more unique somehow? You know, which is grammatically impossible and also conceptually a little confusing. So yeah, it's unique, it's different, but so is every other year. And so is this somehow more different? You know, you start to well, say, that, that, then not, you have it, to say, the question the, is really, the questions, no, wait, okay. no, right. then you have to Sorry. say something else. <laughs> the examples you all gave were technological, mm -hmm. but human life is not merely technological. And we know that one of the things we look in the past that say, take marriage, gender, sex, all those relations, wildly different from time to time. The lesson of history has been that these things are, as they say, socially constructed. And that's not going away. Mm -hmm. you know, the, whatever arrangements we have now are going to be socially constructed. They're going to be you know, artificial in some way. 
And that's not a lesson that I can't imagine the circumstances in which that passes by. So I can say, okay, even if I grant you that you know, our advances in biology really do make this different and, and so forth, there's these whole other vast realms of human life in which the history you know, still has a lot to teach us. Okay, the, um, just a, as a sort of minor aside, are, mm -hmm. are you, either both of you familiar with uh, my former MIT colleague Joe Haldeman's novel Forever War. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things there, of course, is because he sort of takes his lead character out of time for large chunks of time, and he has to sort of re-enter, um, uh, you know, with the relativistic time dilation. He re-enters different, you know, substantially changed periods. And the social relations, of course, change greatly. But I guess um, what I was asking is, is, before we sort of go into more specifics, to drill down a little bit further and say, okay, um, the perception of, of unprecedented change is just a sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a solipsistic uh, flaw in ourselves. We always think that, you know, we are the center of the universe and everything else is, is, is secondary. Um, but what, do you have any sense of a typology of the ways history informs uh, thinking about the future? I mean, is it, is, are, you, are you, I mean, before we sort of go into specific examples that, 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 that where we can talk about that, is, you know, it's easy enough to say, yes, there is a human past and we did things and those events or those choices had consequences and we live those consequences and they'll continue to play out as we, as we work against them. But is it simply um, a reflection of the fact that the choices we are making now are conditioned on some history of their own sort of, you know, we are pursuing, you know, from the, from the theory of evolution to detailed chemical understanding, the mechanisms of evolution to technological um, power over certain kinds of transformations is one kind of history. Is there more of an intellectual history that, that it's a history of ideas that you are thinking of, or is it really that kind of fine-grained history of, of specific events connecting to events moving forward? I, I think it's both. Um, it sounded to me kind of like what you were suggesting was that there's kind of a history of ideas, which could be almost anything, and then there's a history of technological advances and scientific understanding. You're sort of saying like well, that, that there was like, well, we've learned a lot more about chemistry, and like, well, but of course we haven't really learned about how gender works. Say. Let, 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 let me focus. I mean, you, you know, the people who say now most often that the, that the past is increasingly less significant mm -hmm. to what we're thinking about going forward are people who are involved in you know, technological optimism, technological, you know, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, hard science fiction end of futurism, uh, Kurzweil and singularity, the yeah. accumulation of knowledge, all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's a claim that the things we do with our machines and, our, and specific intellectual processes are so much more powerful now and have a path that can be seen to be yet enormously more powerful, that there really isn't a precedent for that. And you guys have both emphasized sort of social history as, as you know, the box that any kind of technological change comes in. And I guess I'm asking for you to, to sort of play out the tension between those, those two, you know, views of what matters going forward. Well, take the singularity. I mean, every time I read the singularity, it seems like we're going right back to Babylon. 
think of the world of sing the singularity in which there are these entities we don't understand that are radically changing our lives in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And you're talking about somebody in the fifth millennium BC thinking about thunderstorms, lightning, drought, and so forth. <clears throat> it's, you know, it's so old fashioned um, that I, I kind of hope, that was really a drag. I, I, <laughs> you really hope we don't return to that. And um, yet, you know, it's also sort of weirdly, deeply Christian in a way, that uh, Judeo-Christian with this, these godlike beings on there that, I don't know, it seems so culturally um, blind in a mm -hmm. way, uh, oblivious of its intellectual um, processes, that it's hard for me to take seriously. Um, it's, also, yeah. it's also really paralyzing, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's all about how, well, machines will take over, and we there's nothing we can do, right? There's and they're no, unknowable machines. They're not actual machines. They're gods. They're, they're not actual machines. And I mean, it, it's funny because I was talking to somebody about what's the difference between the kind of singulatarian fear that the AI are going to come and, and do something terrible to us versus, say, fears of atomics during the 1950s. And I said, well, the difference is, in the 50s, we had actually seen what atomic bombs could do. That was an actually existing technology that had actually killed lots of people and was really terrifying versus now when people fear AI it's something that hasn't been invented yet it's something that is theoretical it's been theoretical for you know it's always 10 years out right like we're always about to invent um, you know whatever uh, type of um, thinking machine that you want to call it uh, but it hasn't happened and so it really does take on this religious glow you know it's the rapture of the nerds as um, as many people have said um, and I think that the other thing about it is that um, it does it does place the engine of history in the engine, as it were. Like it, I, I think a lot about um, uh, in in uh, Walden Pond um, by Henry David Thoreau. He has this really famous line where he talks about the railroad. He's quite concerned about how the railroad, like AI, is going to take over and destroy us. And he has this great line where he says, "The railroad rides us." We don't ride the railroad, it rides us. The technology controls us, is what he's trying to say. I mean, he's trying to say lots of other fancy things, too. He's very literary. Um, but, he's, but what he's trying to imply is that we're, it's not that we are the authors of our own technology, that somehow the technology itself will be driving us, which is a complete falsehood. Technology is, is a human tool. We use it. And we can use the most advanced technology we've ever invented, whatever synthetic biology you invent, whatever nanotechnology you invent, uh, you know, or whatever nanoscale devices you invent. Um, and you can use those to enforce some of the most ancient kinds of human structures, right? Like you could use them to enforce patriarchy. You could use them to enforce slavery. Um, you don't have to progress as a civilization, or what we think of as progressing as a civilization, just because you get fancy new technology. Um, and technology doesn't drive us forward. It's really, it is social. And it's a combination of technology and, and social change, but you can't ever just claim um, that technology is the thing that will drive us to a new place. And the other thing is, I always think, um, maybe this awful thing would happen, mm -hmm. but we would get used to it and kind of like it. <clears throat> and I um, think about, uh, Many years ago, I used to work with a guy <clears throat> who had um, served during the Second World War. And he was always saying, think about it. Hitler won. What did he want? A world that was totally militarized, 
a world in which everybody was constantly under surveillance, a world that was, you know, where, where police were everywhere and could do what they wanted and shoot minorities. Racial profiling. Racial, racial profiling. He would list all these things. He said, Hitler won. And I was like, oh, well, you know, this is just my world, right? Yeah. And so I sometimes think that there'll be some person like me living in the singularity, and then some ancient person will be saying, this is just terrible. You know, we warned you about this. And he said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> I like my augmented brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, plenty of people have noted that, that uh, Osama bin Laden achieved uh, much of the, the havoc he wished to wreak on the United States uh, for, for, for you know, minimal investment of, of relatively low tech, and it's the same argument your, your friend was saying. Um, I'd like to, you know, we talk on this level for a long time, but I'd actually like to, to sort of start pulling up some, some cases so we can see in more detail uh, how you build the argument for um, a past interpenetrating the future. And one of the things I know you both have thought about a lot are, are cities. So there's a lot of writing that, that I'm sure we've all seen about uh, this new age of cities, the, the intensity of urbanization, the scale of cities now at, at you know, just um, you know, the, the mega cities uh, that exist um, in the developing world, all this kind of thing. And um, there are claims that, that uh, this is, in some sense, a, a reorganization of the sort of way, hum, you know, the, the mass of human society actually experiences daily life. When, when did the U.S. go 50-50 urban? It was like 1920, something like that. I can't remember which sense, 20 or 30. Um, and now, of course, uh, it's way off the scale. But, you know, urbanization's been around for a while. Um, does, a, does a, you know, to our eyes now at a, a tiny little city like um, you know Athens in the fourth or fifth century BCE have or how do you how do you draw a thread from that to a New York or a Mexico City or a Shanghai well I guess I would say I think about it a little differently one of the things that I'm most interested in is that archaeology is telling us that our conception of what a city is isn't the only way they can mm -hmm. be and we think of cities as these sort of huge dominant forces, you know, with a, with a much more emptier and poorer countryside, or not necessarily poor, but certainly emptier. Yeah. And that's been pretty much the case for, forever, even when the countryside had many more people in it, always the cities completely dominated it. But now archaeology is telling us that the Amazon, for instance, had a completely different kind of urban structure. Mm -hmm. in which they had these networks of smaller cities and the idea of a countryside and the city were very, very different. They were completely interpenetrated um, with each other in a way, curiously enough, that um, the great urban theorist Ebenezer Howard um, mm -hmm. kind of wrote about in this amazing book, Garden Cities of the Future. And there's a complete example of it covering large chunks of the Amazon. Or if you go into the Andes, they have these incredible show capitals in which there are vast cities basically that had nobody in them and uh, were done, seen as you know, religious and central. So the way we do it, again, history is telling us, isn't the only way that, that, they, that they can do it. And I also feel like there's this, this is particularly important for environmental issues, and there's a kind of um, environmental modernist that feels like the way to save the environment is to pack everybody into cities. So there's 98% of the population is in cities. It's a little bit like those Isaac Asimov novels. And then you know, out there, there's some robots farming and, right, and, and so forth. And um, you know, what, again, what archaeology and anthropology and history tell us is 
that those landscapes that, you know, then the idea is nature would return, mm -hmm. but the idea that nature never had people in it, you know, hasn't been true for thousands and thousands of years, and so that that arrangement um, would be actually something new, mm -hmm. and almost every case in which it's been tried has been disastrous. Um, so, you know, there's again another way that uh, it's kind of useful to think about the past. The, um, the other thing that, I mean, there's many things we could say about this, but one of the interesting things that's also coming out in archaeology, although it's a huge subject of debate, is around the question of which came first, agriculture or cities. Mm -hmm. And it's starting to look now like basically the answer is yes, they both came at the same time. Um, there's actually some evidence that perhaps city-like structures existed maybe even before formal. Yeah, Gebekli Tepe. And yeah, stuff, yeah, exactly, which was kind of a, one of these symbolic cities mm -hmm. that you were talking about, a kind of um, a city that people went to for religious rituals. Uh, this is in Turkey. Um, and, and so that suggests to me that our ways of doing land planning, um, our ways of feeding ourselves by, um, by planning farms and by, by planning agriculture, which of course goes into these questions around sustainability and, um, you know, that that's part of cities. And so that from the moment that we started making cities, we were making these farms and we were thinking about how to, how to remold nature. And that the city is part of nature in that sense, that we can't, you can't have a farm without a city. You can't, well, maybe you could. You guys but go try that. there haven't been that for a long time. They basically. haven't really. I mean, and there are farming communities, but cities cannot exist without farms, and that's you know absolutely economically the case. Um, it's the case just pragmatically. You got to have some food, um, and you can't just grow it in your on your roof um, as much as uh, some environmentalists believe that you might be able to. Um, and I think the other thing about um, cities that I think ties the megacity to really ancient uh, past examples of cities um, is this is something that we're seeing a lot now, which is building these massive monuments. Um, one of the things that's happening in megacities, right, is we're seeing a lot of incredibly huge towers being built, just crazy tall, you know, every day you read about like another mega skyscraper, you know, another um, huge floating building is being built in New York. Um, and these are buildings that are not necessary. Like, we don't need to have giant tall Yeah, but they're about wowing the yokels. They're about wowing the yokels. Um, they're very, it, they remind me very much of like, of ziggurats from <laughs> Mesopotamia, you know, where you just, just build a giant thing to make everyone feel like the city is the place to be. There's this really uh, interesting uh, archeologist, Marion Binns, um, who has a paper about monumental architecture uh, in very early urban settlements in Turkey, um, Neolithic settlements. Um, and she studies an area called Kurtek Tepe, uh, which is sort of contemporaneous with Çatalhöyük and some of the other uh, cool early settlements. And she believes that, that this urge to build monumental architecture is actually uh, responding to a crisis in settlement, and that basically um, in early history, during the Neolithic, people were going from being nomads to actually living a sedentary life, which was incredibly traumatizing and bizarre to suddenly be living just in one place inside of a box and having to see your neighbor every day and smell your neighbor every day. <laughs> and you know that this created a lot of tension um, and that people were kind of, I mean, to put it simply, people were freaking out. 
And they needed to feel like something about their settlement was permanent. They needed a new symbolic language to help them just get used to living in these settled communities instead of just wandering around. And so they would build these megastructures. And this is just her theory, uh, you know, shared with, with a number of other uh, archaeologists, uh, um, that this is kind of a reaction. And so I think when you look at these megacities, I, I wonder if that's a kind of psychological reaction to these new cities where you, you go to them and there's 15 million people, there's 25 million people. It's overwhelming. It's a kind of settlement that humans haven't had before. It is historically unprecedented. And so maybe we're inventing a new kind of urban language to, to deal with it. You know, that basically what I'm saying is all of these skyscrapers are about the fact that we're freaking out. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and they also, um, the other argument that archaeologists make, which I don't think is at all, you know, uh, against it, is that you see these things, like the descriptions that I, I ever think about are the first descriptions of Cahokia, which is this uh, enormous uh, native city that's near St. Louis. And you can see it for miles. And these uh, uh, Europeans came there in the uh, late ancient century, and they could see this thing, you know, mm -hmm. because it's flat there, these giant um, earthen pyramids for many miles. And they basically write, and they sort of go, holy crap. And imagine what this was like when these things were really great. And what it filled them with was you know, respect for the society. And that's when you have these giant pyramids, it makes you want to be a citizen, mm -hmm. you, you know, to obey the rules, because look at this. Mm -hmm. right? And so it's a tremendous way of reinforcing um, social solid solidarity in a particular yeah. way. Yeah, especially at a time when maybe uh, people are feeling unsettled about mm -hmm. living in these new kinds of communities. So, um, so I do think we're seeing some continuity there yeah. between these ancient cities. And so that's what, you know, I sort of think about this. Uh, a week or so ago, I was in New York, and I went to Trump Tower. And both of these things, uh, holy crap. And uh, you know, I could see it. I wanted to be, vote for him for president. And he could do this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to vote for not... the guy who built the ziggurats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. It's a modern ziggurat. And it's covered with gold. How cool is that? I right? know. <laughs> I'm just going to let that one sort of sit there. For a I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued, though, that I mean, you both go to sort of deep antiquity to these, these, these examples that have um, you know, enormous evocative power, but not, not a huge amount of, of, of records to sort of really reconstruct what's going on. I mean, I'm, I'm, when I'm thinking about the history of the city and, 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 and trying to connect it to questions we may have about um, our own current decisions in their future, I mean, I'm really fascinated by the sort of transition from medieval to early modern. You know, when, you, when between 1400 and 1600, or between 1500 and 1700, you get London and Paris uh, shifting from being you know, much larger than average, but not you know out completely out of scale settlements to utterly dominant. I mean, by 1700, London has 650, 700 thousand people in it, and the next largest town has 30 thousand. Um, it's bigger than London is has, is more populous than something like the next 60 cities and towns, um, and. That was a really, you know, that was again a shocking, you know, if you were in London, you were a Londoner, and if you came from outside, as as, as uh, not only people did but had to, because the the death rate exceeded the birth rate in London for a long time. Its population growth was all in migration. Um, you were coming to a completely different. I mean, there was a significant differences in language and practice and you know means of living and all that sort of stuff, um, and. You know, you see a lot of apocalyptic, you know, 
responses, but you also see this extraordinary um, kind of urban culture that really did not exist anywhere else in, in England at that time. And you have a similar thing going on in Paris. Um, and that seems more like what we've experienced over the last 50 years, particularly in some of the cultures that have seen megacities really leap uh, out of, out of this, this enormous rural in-migration in the developing world. And I mean, is this, you know, and there we have the, the thing that I guess is, that's most striking to me is there is this, you know, huge immediate, and we can see it because there's paper and cheap paper and printing and all that, all those good things. Uh, this e enormous cultural response that really tries to, that really succeeds in defining the city as a, a, another place. Some celebrate it like, you know, Samuel Pepys and some sort of regard it as this utter, you know, hell, sort of hell the end of civilization, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, how does your thinking shift when you move from, you know, deep antiquity, where we're really trying to infer um, experience from, a, you know, a hugely different time where that leap of trying to understand the past is even more difficult than it is, say, you know, what our grandparents experienced. You know, can you, can you get us a little closer to the present? You know, different societies, again, have different mm. ways, because uh, before London and Paris, mm. you know, the big cities were also to the south. Mm -hmm. And so you, you know, at the time of, um, you know, 1400, Edo had a million people in it. Right. Um, you know, Constantinople or Istanbul, whatever you're going to call it, had you know, depends even, on when. Yeah, mm -hmm. had you know more than a million people mm -hmm. in it. Uh, cities in there, and they were all organized very differently mm -hmm. from from European cities. And so, in Edo, you know, there's this great thing. This is an impossible mixture unless we have pretty rigid social control. Mm -hmm. And so you have a strikingly orderly uh, city with you know, different assigned crafts and so forth, um, different neighborhoods doing different things. It was really quite amazing to what, there, what was going on there. And it's vastly different than, mm -hmm. than London. And so, it's so much, to me, the lesson again from history here is that, difference, that we actually have a lot of choice about how these cities could look. And we sort of think like, Oh, these cities, they sort of, you know, in the US, we sort of spring up urban planning and all that we don't really like. But we do have, they are planned in the, in the sense that we have institutions that, that set them up. And they don't have to have the ones we have now. So the, the, the past is a source of license for the future. Yeah, in that sense, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at the past as a series of experiments, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's really interesting about looking at cities is that even in one city, like Istanbul is a great example, because it's been, not only has it been named three different things, or maybe more even, uh, but it's been so many different cities, it's had so many different cultures occupying it, because it's kind of always been at the fringes or even at the center of different empires. Um, and, and so you see, change, like you see one city being many cities over time, and so in trying different experiments and trying different ways of governing and different ways of building and different ways of funding how you build things, um, and so, I mean, that's what's really, I think what really joins, say, the rise of London with today is that, of course, as you know from your own work, um, what we're seeing is the rise of capitalism and how capitalism helps us build cities um, or, or helps us not build cities in some cases. Uh, and so that becomes um, something that's relevant to how we're building cities now, since so many of the mega cities of today are built on, on global capital, and they're built on a lot of the trade relationships that were established mm -hmm. during that period. Um, 
I'm, I'm a city buff, so we could talk city for the next many hours. <laughs> but there's a lot more past, and there's a lot more future. And one of the things that's, uh, uh, that's obviously a, a huge question we have about the future from our current present is climate change uh, and the role of climate change in, in, in relation to social change. Um, and, uh, you know, it's often said that, you know, uh, the buildup of carbon in the atmosphere and global warming is uh, unique because it is the first time that human beings have sort of done this completely global experiment on our, on our uh, circumstances of living. Not by everybody you know. I know not. Yeah, yeah I do know that. that no, not no, I mean, but that the argument you know, made by a lot of climatologists yeah. is that we've been affecting the climate for oh, eight or 10,000 years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and there's a, there's a you know, pre-human history argument that yeah. life has been on, you yeah. know, not, not argument, there's a fact that life has affected, the, you know, there's this co-evolution of climate and life. Um, What's different is that we know about it. We know about it, and we can yeah. measure it, and we have some some confidence in the predictions a, of what might happen. Yeah, yeah. we have a yeah we we have a clue of what will happen and, and kind of how we could fix it. Maybe. Right, maybe or at least respond to it. Um, but what uh, in in your own work, um, you know, Charles, maybe starting with you, um, are there examples you can find in history where uh, societies either recognized changing climate and still failed to adapt, or you know, perhaps more hopefully, um, responded to changes in, in their sort of ecological circumstances yeah. uh, with effect? I think I can say this. I'm not quite certain that this is true, but I think there is no large-scale society that is uncontroversially believed to have collapsed as a result of environmental issues. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, you know, this definitely happened in some, like, islands, right. little islands and so forth, but a large-scale continental society, I'm not, I'm not aware of any example of where people say, this society fell because mm -hmm. it failed, exclusively because it failed to adapt. When you have something like the Maya, they knew that drought was there. Mm -hmm. They knew that this was happening, but they had wrecked their um, institutions for coping with it by a 200-year civil war. Um, in the central part of this, and precisely that area where they'd had the this, this civil war between these two you know, mega cities mm -hmm. or mega collections of, of cities was the part that fell and the part that hadn't been involved up to the north and to the south did just fine all through the, through the drought. Mm -hmm. And so you know, that's actually a pretty hopeful thing is that if we really screw up because of climate change, do we, you know, it may be the first time we've been so stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's hopeful or so, not. <laughs> yeah. So it is a radically different time. Yeah, if we fail, it will be radically different, yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a test of destruction experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I like that. But also, we have had incidents where human beings have, you know, increasingly, um, I think this is fair to say, the idea that the Little Ice Age, mm -hmm. you know, this period of time when there was a global cold snap between 15, roughly 1550 and roughly um, 1800, where, you know, all sorts of really you know, crazy things happened in Europe and uh, China and, and North America related to these extreme cold uh, periods. Mm -hmm. And that's generally, I think, increasingly believed to have been related to the death of Native Americans and the cessation of burning all throughout the, um, all throughout the Americas and the regrowth of the um, eastern forest as a, as a result. And both of which sucked carbon dioxide out of the air and uh, pulled global temperatures down about two degrees C. So there's, there is an example of a feedback. There is an example, and it was really bad. I yeah. mean, lots and lots of bad things um, happened. The, Ming, the collapse of the Ming Dynasty is thought to be related to this. Um, 
you know, many, many people starved in the peripheries of Europe. Um, lots of terrible things happened in, in Canada and so forth. And these are, so we, it was a, you know, a mm -hmm. dire event, but we managed to make it through it. Were you? I mean, I, not to bring us back to the ancient world again, I know it's, all right. it's painful for you, but um, <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the uh, ancient civilizations that I'm really interested in is the Harappan civilization, which um, we, we don't know a lot about um, because we haven't yet deciphered uh, their writing. Can you, can you tell me where and when? So it's also called the Indus Valley Civilization. Ah. So it was located in what's now India and Pakistan. Um, and the height of it was around um, 2600 to 1700 BCE, so very long ago. Um, and during the course of that civilization, which was quite a longstanding urban civilization, which was similar to Maya in that mm. they had a lot of satellite cities. They had a few really large uh, cities, like Harappa was, was one of them. Um, and they had uh, an extensive system of uh, roads. People immigrated a lot. Um, and that area where they built up this civilization was fed by a number of rivers that over the course of the thousands of years that the civilization kind of rose and fell, uh, changed their course. And so again, we can't say for sure it was climate change that caused uh, a change in the civilization, uh, that it went from urban to basically rural again. Uh, but certainly, uh, the, the fact that they were no longer fed by these rivers made it much more difficult to sustain uh, an, an urban civilization. Um, but there's a lot of things that were quite interesting uh, about their culture, um, one of which is that they were traders, and we know that they traded with the Mesopotamians. They made these very characteristic uh, blue glass beads um, that, that are found all throughout the whole region. Um, and I think the thing, I mean, I could, I could actually talk about them forever, so please just go read more about the Harappan civilization, because it really is. They also had fantastic um, aqueducts. They were like among the first uh, urban civilization to develop aqueducts. Harappa, um, just look up Indus Valley Civilization. That'll be, that'll be a good way to do it. Um, H-R-A-P-P-A, wait, did I spell that right? Anyway. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And, uh, but anyway, the, there's a lot of controversy over how the civilization transitioned. Um, and what I think is notable is that, again, it didn't fall. And in fact, if you talk to somebody who studies the Harappans, they'll get really pissed if you talk about the fall of the civilization, because that's an absurd term. Like, civilizations change, they don't fall. Um, unless you literally have like the Borg come down and scoop them <laughs> up um, and, and you know, eliminate all aspects of their culture. So, um, but what did happen was in order to cope with climate change, people immigrated away. They went back to smaller agricultural communities uh, and they retained their culture. And there's a lot of um, continuity between some of the uh, icons that we see in Harappan culture that show cer uh, certain yoga poses that later get used um, by other cultures in the region. And so we know that these people did kind of go out and um, you know, blend into other civilizations that were in the area. So I do think that um, you know, when we look forward to how climate change might transform our cities, you know, maybe we are looking at something where cities will evaporate and will change, or maybe we're looking at something where um, it's not that cities will go away completely, but they'll just look really different. Like our culture today will be significantly mutated. And, and uh, you know, that makes perfect sense to me. The one thing that 
um, I've been struck by, though, is, the, or rather, one of the claims for distinctive, distinctiveness of the present that rings uh, with a lot of credibility to me is, is that one of the changes now is we face many of the same challenges, and we're still human beings, so many of our responses will be similar. Um, but we've built an awful lot more infrastructure in the way of natural changes. And you know, the, the, the old joke, you know, there, are, there aren't any natural disasters. There are natural variations and human disasters, and the disasters are a result of, of the interaction of a hurricane with, you know. Um, brick. Brick. Decided or, to build you know, with brick. Or, or build with brick, or, or the fact that we now have, you know, a, a continuous line of cottages at the high tide line on the eastern U.S. seaboard. I mean, these are things that weren't there 50 years ago or 100 years ago, and that means, you know, just if you're an insurance executive, you know that next year's hurricane of exactly the same strength as the hurricane of 1958 will do gazillions dollars more damage and disrupt, you know, many more lives and just, you know, all that sort of stuff. Or, or the electrical grid and a solar storm. Right. You know. So, so is there? I mean, I mean, I. I, I I believe, I, I believe deeply and to the bone in the, in the continuity of human experience, and, and therefore that the past matters. But I also really do think that there are, you know, it's important to note that um, it's not just continuity, that there are, these, that there are some major changes that occur. Well, I guess I would say, think of the Maya as probably the most urban society that has ever existed, right? And, you know, basically the entire Yucatan, you know, the southern Yucatan all the way down to the middle of Guatemala, basically one city after another. Right. If there was ever a society that hated nature, right. it was them. Um, <laughs> you know, all the windows point inwards, nothing outside. There, they had, then everything, there's hardly any trees. It was all, you know, farm and these, and these cities. Right. This is in the same, you can see it now if you go right. to one of the Maya ruins, you just wander off the edge. It's not, the, you know, the... The, you, when you go to the edge, you're still in the city. Mm. And you go, and you can walk for hours and hours and hours. And what happens? You go to another city, right? right? And it's, so it's the sprawl, right? Um, and it's H sitting Houston, on Houston, Houston in 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 a, in a right, different right, city, right? Right. <laughs> um, and if you think about it, this is this giant slab of limestone, the peninsula. There's no water. Mm -hmm. There's only uh, one river worth speaking of, and it's hardly. And then they have these um, wells that are many of which are toxic. Mm -hmm. So dealing with water is a major issue there, and they had this very elaborate system of canals and reservoirs and these things called sock bays, and it was, it was an entirely artificially constructed environment in which they had enormously densely populated um, cities, and that persisted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in mm -hmm. that state. And it fell, when I think fall is really, in, this, in the central part, is really actually appropriate in this, in, in this case. It transformed. It would transform really bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and a bad transformation. <laughs> very bad transformation. <laughs> when, after this war, there weren't any engineers to keep up the infrastructure and to keep up adjusting it. And so I think you know, the, the question isn't so much how much infrastructure we have, because they had an incredible, there were more people living there then than now. Mm -hmm. um, they had this incredibly elaborate um, infrastructure question is whether they're able to keep it up. Right. And sometimes that's what I fear. You know, is, is, yeah. yeah, the disruption of social knowledge. Um, moving on a little bit to something that Annalie was, was, was uh, hinting at, um, which is the notion of, of the movement of people. Um, 
again, one of the things that people point to in the 20th century is these you know, enormous movements of people because of war or disruption or global change or decolonization or decolonization, all the, the different sources of a reason to move from where, you, where your parents and grandparents grew up and where you are. Um, uh, to me, that's the sort of most obviously historically deeply rooted human experience. Um, but we're facing these, you know, I mean, just as a immediate today contemporary political question in this country and in Europe with the Syrian, in, you know, uh, tragedy, uh, we're seeing a, a new immigration crisis and we're getting these claims that this is somehow, if not unprecedented, unacceptable. It must be put to a stop. And again, I wonder what you would, uh, you would say beyond the obvious that this is just, you know, uh, I mean, there are lots of obvious things that one could say, but is, is, there, um, is there a way to construct a historical narrative that tells us either that we are in a very unusual period of human motion or rather that we're not, that this is, you know, sort of the basic pattern that we've seen for a while? And I'm tossing that to you, Chris, because you were the one who brought it <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, no, I think that this is part of the, the basic pattern of, of human expansion, even going back to the Paleolithic period. Um, you know, people move around, uh, and they move from community to community. Um, and some of our greatest achievements as humans have come from immigration. And, you know, there's whole... Um, there's a myth about the Silk Road um, and natural reality to the Silk Road um, as a civilization, which was basically built on um, uh, immigration between cities and trade between cities. Um, and I think there's a really interesting book by uh, Valerie Hansen, who's a historian, um, looking at the Silk Road. And, and I'm picking on the Silk Road just because it's um, her argument in that book is that you know we think now when we look at the myth of the Silk Road or if we you know read about uh, the more recent electronic version of the Silk Road and we think it was all about trade and um, her argument which is very persuasive is that it was actually a road for immigration and that what mostly moved along this road which really stretched from coastal China all the way into India um, and eventually much later uh, you know kind of all the way into Europe um, was that people moved on that road. People moved from town to town, and um, especially during what we call the medieval era, um, people didn't even think of it as like a big trade route where you know I make something in China and eventually it winds up in Rome or vice versa. Um, they would think of it as just the road to the next city. And there's a lot of documentation, especially from like the 600s and 700s, uh, of people referring to this road as the road to Samarkand, which is an awesome ancient city, by the way, speaking of ancient cities. It's in Uzbekistan. Um, it isn't, it isn't uh, quite as, as uh, exciting as it was in the 600s. Um, <laughs> but in the 600s, it was really it was great. It was hopping. Um, and there was an ethnic group uh, known as the Sogdians um, who've been completely kind of eradicated, uh, who lived there and who traded and who actually moved to a lot of cities all along the route, uh, including into Western China. And, um, and they helped uh, spread uh, literacy by trading books, bringing books with them. They helped forge a path uh, that then a lot of scholars kind of traveled on, uh, especially Buddhist scholars at that time. And, um, and so 
because of that immigration, because of people walking on that road and maybe carrying a few books with them or carrying a little bit of silk with them to use for trade, um, you know, the civilization in that area was incredibly, the science was enhanced, uh, people's belief systems were challenged, people learned new things, people learned, learned new languages, um, people moved from city to city, and it was one of, you know, sort of a golden age, um, you know, at different points uh, during the history of that of those trade routes. And of course, there was not just one trade route. Um, that would have been awesome if there had just been like one Silk Road that was just like totally cut right through through China, paved um, in yellow brick. Paved in yellow brick, exactly. Um, with but there were many different roads, and at different times, uh, different empires like the Han Empire, and then much later, um, uh, Mongolians uh, would uh, actually put. Um, you know, nice guard towers along the road and kind of keep things safe and, you know, keep people, you know, moving along and there was a great mail system for a while. Um, and in fact, a lot of the artifacts from that time are actually letters that people wrote that kind of got lost along the way, um, including a famous Sogdian letter that a woman wrote to her husband calling him a dog because um, he had left her in this city and she was really pissed off. Um, so uh, that's what you, but that's, so I think. That's the continuity part of history as opposed that's the to the continuity. Change. Yeah, it's actually, it's so great. Like if you, if you Google Sogdian, like it's one of our only pieces of, of Sogdian writing. Um, and it's just this really angry, uh, angry woman. Um, and so, I mean, she sounds justified to be fair. Uh, but so I think that was sort of a, a long way of saying that, you know, some of the, the greatest um, urban achievements, cultural achievements in human history um, have been associated with the movement of people between cultures and between cities. And I think if there's any kind of continuity, um, it's that we know for sure that immigrants make places better, that having immigration, having free movement between places is actually an improvement um, for the cultures that get the immigrants. Um, and certainly, you know, immigrants, um, you know, when they're treated well, uh, you know, wind up benefiting too. Um, and so, I'm, I guess I probably should step in here, right? Yeah, um, you're, yeah. give so us the, your expertise. The answer is no, obviously not. Um, <laughs> but the, um, listen, that actually, you know, basically I should say I have a bias that uh, I think of as a Copernican uh, bias that, you know, nothing is special, right? That's, right. that's, that's, what, that's what physics teaches you, right? That, that every, you know, that you, the moment you start thinking that something is really special and unique, you're fooling yourself, right? right. And so, but there occasionally are unprecedented moments, and that was one of them. When um, the Europeans came, diseases wiped out, you know, two-thirds to 90% of the inhabitants of the Americas, a fifth of humanity, you know, the only, it's the only demographic collapse like that, as far as known, in history. Um, it, it's really an outlier, and it had huge implications for, you know, everything that happened uh, next, including the fact that Europeans were able to, um, to come here. Um, because otherwise it would have been pretty much kicked out um, by you know, numerically superior um, aboriginal groups. So the, that is it. But it's such an outlier that I don't know if it in, actually invalidates um, what you're saying because that, that was a very weird bad thing that happened. It is a weird bad thing, but it, it actually goes to the point that, we, that I raised very early on, which is that history is complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not ever going to be a moment where I could say, I mean, I was sort of praising immigration, and I do think that in general, 
having borders be porous and allowing people to move between countries is a good thing. Um, but of course, there are examples like imperialism. Like, that sucked for everybody who got colonized. Like, nobody liked that. Well, the imperialists liked it. They thought that was <laughs> awesome. Um, but it was, you know, not, it was not a good deal for people who were invaded and, you know, enslaved or turned into, you know, toadies of the invading state or whatever. So, um, you know, and, and I think some people would even argue that that's not the same thing as immigration when you have like an invading force that comes in and takes over the government, that that's a, a very different structure uh, than just letting people move between nations. Um, but yeah, it's complicated, right? And even, even you know, even the history of, um, of conquest is, you know, I mean, there is a... It's complicated too. It's a very, you know, it's, it's, it, it's one thing where you have the Roman Empire essentially making deals with the elites of cities that they, quote, conquer. And it's another thing when you have, you know, um, you know the, the, the German forces rolling through Poland. It's, it, these, are, these are very different experiences on all levels. Um, I want to open this up to the floor in just a moment. And, um, and I got many, many more questions. Um, but I guess I'm going to sort of truncate my series of questions with this, uh, with, with really sort of uh, a two-sided question. Um, one is we've been talking for this hour about how the past really does have, you know, a variety of ways to inform our thinking about the present and the future. And I guess I'm curious as to what you both might say about what it says about us now as we make claims that we are facing a future that has no precedent? Well, I think this is very human. I was just reading, actually, today. I, my daughter is uh, considering going to MIT, so I, I, I live outside of town, so I came and I brought her and I had the day. And I was reading about, um, for this project I'm working on, about the guano crisis of 1902. And um, at the time. Missed that one, so yeah. Now. <laughs> no, at the time, it was, it was actually here in, in Boston, so it's you know, local news. There was a great conference about guano, um, which was then mined from these islands off the, off the Pacific coast of, uh, of South America and also off the Atlantic coast of um, Africa. And it was a major fertilizer, and they were running out. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this was regarded as a worldwide problem. And the me meeting of all the great thinkers came, and they said, civilization, we're living in this time of absolutely unprecedented prosperity which is based on agricultural um, growth, which is in turn based on this fertilizer, that is gonna vanish and our civilization is poised on the precipice like nothing it has ever been on before. <laughs> and so I, I can't tell you how many of these civilizational precipices that are unprecedented that, I, that there have been. And uh, th this one was a particularly enjoyable one to, re to, to read about. Um, six years later, um, uh, Gifford Pinchot, the pioneering uh, forester, uh, convened the first governor's conference, uh, Teddy Roosevelt did it, to confront the cataclysmic shortage of wood, um, that the United States was going to be completely deforested, there would not be a tree left, and uh, you know, we're again on the edge of a civilizational precipice, like a moment like no other. Mm -hmm. And um, you read these enough, and you realize that sort of these cataclysmic um, things arise about every six or seven years, and um, we seem, as human beings, to be incapable of learning from this. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Lee, do you have a, a, a thought uh, on this? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that there is a long history of teetering on the brink of, um, of collapse, of, of believing that we are. And I think um, 
One of the things that I always enjoy is reading um, you know, treatises, especially from like the 60s and 70s, about television. Television is going to take over our minds. It's going to destroy children. It's going to turn us into brainwashed zombies. Um, what else is television going to do? It's going to keep us from going outside. It's going to make us antisocial. It might be shrinking our brains. We're not sure. Um, and nobody says that about TV anymore, right? Because they say it about the internet. But right now, now, TV is good now. TV now, exactly. TV. The whole trope about TV now is that actually it's good for you. It's artisanal. It's like a way of telling a narrative that's you know that stretches out. It's like the longest narrative you ever saw, which makes it awesome um, <laughs> because it's a, it's like a long read only with your eye, you know even more. Um, and so and and it's and that's the same kind of thing, you know. It's and and I think that when we consider these kind of singularitarian arguments about how you know computers are going to take over our minds and we're going to be victimized by machines, we have to remember that, yeah, every generation there's this crisis over some new kind of technology. And the arguments are always the same. Not always the same, but they're always very similar. They always focus on how our minds will be colonized and how our desires will be appropriated uh, by you know whoever is making the pop culture that we're consuming. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that is what we have to learn from. We have to learn to stop being paralyzed by believing that we're so special and that we're poised on you know, the brink of disaster or the brink of heaven and really start kind of coming up with tools to plan pragmatically, you know, and not not keep predicting the end. So can I contradict myself now? Please. <laughs> You're um, permitted. <laughs> okay. So what this led to, the guano crisis. Um, <laughs> Let's uh, get back to guano. I'd like to go back to this. <laughs> Was um, a national effort that they had to create artificial fertilizer, and that led to the Haber-Bosch process. And one of the cool things about talking at MIT is there's probably at least some of you guys who know what that is, right? You know, the creation of artificial um, ammonia, which is the creation of artificial fertilizer, which has led to an absolutely enormous amount uh, increase in the amount of fertilizer that's used. And uh, Vaclav Schmiel, this guy up in Manitoba, has calculated that something like 40% of the nitrogen in our bodies is actually created by the Haber-Bosch. <coughs> Uh, process. All this nitrogen, which has done so much for people, has also caused enormous environmental problems. And so even at the same time that these, um, you know, that these crises happen, we always seem to find a solution. Those solutions always seem to create new crises. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, other, the other feature of the Haber-Bosch process, of course, is it is what allowed Germany to make enough munitions to fight World War One, when they were cut off from. And a contributor to climate change. And so, so, so it's, yeah, it's, it's. So the guano might have gotten us all. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, there's tons more to talk about. I have another page of notes to ask questions about, but that would be unfair. Um, we have two microphones. Please use them for your questions, because we are recording this. And please uh, just say who you are, what your name is. Um, off you go, please. Great to be back again at MIT. I did my studies here in the 70s. Um, I'm aware of, I like, wonderful panel. I'd like you to sink your teeth in the idea. This is the first time where many instances, grandparents and great-grandparents can see the offspring. I also jotted down, we've gone from discovering the telegraph. I'm sure when the telegraph appeared, it was unbelievable, beyond the Pony Express. Then came the railroad, which clearly changed things, and then came airplanes. I'm very aware of today's conference, how many of the people who are presenting are about to fly to Portugal, they're coming in from Ohio a little late, and so forth. 
these are all also our little cell phones, our smartphones, where I'm knowing exactly where my kids are doing in the pictures, what they're sending, and so forth. And then, just about an hour ago, someone blew my mind by showing that the nuclear winter calculations were way off. If we had one of the Trident missiles with a kook aboard firing some of the things, it would be 10 times worse than the calculations which we saw back then. So that's a real discontinuity. Certainly we are here, realize that we have always escaped Armageddon and so forth. But it's the first time we were totally connected and watching kooks do much more than just do terrible things in some part of Paris. I, I, so are, are, are you asking if it's unprecedented or are you no, claiming that it is? to this shrinking of the time scale. I used to plan, my parents always took me for three months in the summer to the White Mountains, and then I used to go for two weeks. And my sons can just work in three days. You know, we're, we're chopping our time into smaller and smaller segments. As we're trying to do more and more, my sons will be <coughs> flying around a lot more than I did, and I flew around a lot more than my dad ever did, who came here as an immigrant. So this shrinking of the time scale, can okay. we learn something okay. from that? Well, that shrinking has been going on for a long time. So it's hard to say that there's an actual line where it happened, although there's a terrific book by Tom Standage called The Victorian Internet, which is about the changes in life that were caused by the telegraph, which is the first time that communication could occur faster than, you know, electronic communication could occur faster than was possible for people to travel. And he argues that Basically, all the changes that we see from today's um, instant electronic communications are in the telegraph, and what, we're and what the uh, internet did is kind of democratize them. And so there's an argument that if you look at history, you're seeing the slow process of um, acceleration. But because the environment is homogenizing, you could argue that you know, even though we're traveling more and more the actual distance, the actual difference between one point and another is less and less, so that it's, it's as if we are not traveling at all. Um, I've heard that argued. I'm not sure I believe it. But uh, there's, so there's, there's always available intellectual counter arguments against this kind of thing. Um, just that it seems that the arguments may be true, and I would just say that um, when I think about these ideas that it's unprecedented, I'm aware of how unlikely that is to be true. I just, just to, I know you're there, but just to add to that one little bit, um, in I think 1998, I heard an after-dinner talk by uh, MIT's beloved and great Phil Morrison. And he was, we were preparing to do a series of television shows about uh, the turn of the 21st century, and again, about how much everything had changed and so forth. And so he spent his entire talk describing the connections to a global marketplace that a farm in the Midwest in 1900 had that the degree of awareness it had of the market price of wheat in, again, Shanghai, London, you know, I mean, just, and the, the precision, the weather reports they got from all over the world, the futures, the way that they could do contracts, I mean, all the kinds of things that we think are, you know, that the, the you know, economic crashes of, you know, the, 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 the internet-mediated economic crashes of recent days um, are this sort of whole new thing in human experience, and Phil just gave this great presentation to say, in fact, no, um, uh, the bandwidth was smaller, but many of the issues of speed and immediacy and connection across space have been present for much longer than we give it credit for being. And I think that the 
another important point, which kind of goes to what both of you were saying, is that it's not just about the technologies that we have for, say, getting around like airplanes or the technologies we have for measuring smaller and smaller increments of time, like we go from measuring seconds to measuring nanoseconds. It's also how those tools are used. So when we live in a culture that is focused so much on capitalist production, basically, which is kind of you know, connected to things like, say, um, clocking in, for example, um, you start to see that it's really a social force that is behind a lot of these changes because we don't have to uh, compress our time that much. We don't have to be paying attention to futures, for example. But because we live in an economic system, because of the demands of our labor, then we start to think about how can we use our technology to make our time more productive or to, to expand our work time. And so I think it's always useful to step a little bit outside of, of the tech, um, a little bit outside of um, you know, all of our new industrial devices and think about who's using them and how and kind of how, how that changes if the you, way they impact us. If go you ahead. go to the, one of the things that really struck me, I went to the, I'm uh, like opera, one time I was in Milan and I got to go to the Giuseppe Verdi Museum. And uh, there they have a small fraction of the letters that he wrote in his lifetime, um, 40,000. And um, <laughs> the reason was that Milan, like Paris, and like many European cities at the time, had this system of pneumatic tubes and you could just write something, put it in this tube. He, um, he also had five mail deliveries a day. Um, this guy was, had operas all over the world. He was part of this sort of global thing. He was you know, monitoring productions in, in Europe, the United States, and even Asia. He was getting, you know, he was living a life that's so close to you know, what a modern business person is, is, is living that one hesitates to say, I mean, this guy wrote 100,000 letters. That's surely more emails than... than he was, yeah, he's yeah. basically <laughs> sitting on the internet all day. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's blogging. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, please. Thanks for giving your talk today. My name is Matt. I'm from California, and I have a comment and a question. I had a comment for uh, Anna Lee. I, something that came to mind to me when you were talking about monuments as a response to crisis was a, a psychological principle called anchoring that some people see in trauma, that if the doctor was to come to me and say, I'm sorry, Matt, you have cancer, maybe I would, maybe I would reach out and, and be, not because I'm losing my balance, but I'm trying to find and touch and be grounded uh, in what's, ar excuse me, what's around me. And so uh, the idea of the monuments as a response to crisis reminded me about that. And uh, Charles, I also had a question for you with the timeliness of your research with Christopher Columbus and everything. Uh, Columbus Day is coming up and the celebrations and everything. Do you have any particular thoughts or, or reactions to what's <coughs> going on here with the weekend's festivities? Um, you know, I always think about Columbus as how weird it was that he accidentally, that he actually ended up here. Because the normal way, the way history should have happened um, is what happened um, eight years later when Cabral um, landed in Brazil. To get around, you know, Europeans were going down the coast of Africa. And um, to do that, the currents are such that you have to make a big, with a, with a wind-driven vessel, you have to take a big swing around um, uh, West Africa. And the ocean's pretty narrow there, and it was inevitable, I think, that somebody would get blown, as Cabral did, by a storm, 
and, and land there. And so that would have been, the point, the point of contact would be uh, Brazil. And that, I think, was the sort of what should have happened. Instead, right. this madman um, <laughs> with these completely lunatic ideas about how the size of the earth and uh, the abilities of, um, of the technology um, that was at his disposal, meaning the ships, um, did, did this. So that is just, you know, another, since I'm contradicting myself, another perfect example of how weird and contingent um, these big events can, can be. Uh, and, you know, I look at this, I think, wow, what an accident. <laughs> Kara? Hi, I'm Kara. Um, thanks for a really great talk. Um, I'm really impressed with you guys' obviously knowledge of history and your, also your ability to sort of like imagine the future. And having all these centuries in your head at once allows you to take a really long view that tends to be like very even-handed. And I appreciate that. I think it's great. But I also get kind of stuck on certain examples that you give, like Charles, when you were talking about how some of the Mayans were untouched by the drought, but meanwhile, others of them were in this constant civil war over water. And I'm wondering if you guys ever narrow your scope and think about some of these people who like lose the climate lottery or whatever other lottery. Like, How does your knowledge help you think about those more specific cases where people just kind of get screwed over while the rest of them are, are OK? <laughs> I mean, I'm really interested in the people who get screwed over. Um, so I mean, I think you can't tell a good history without looking at it from both sides. And I, I don't know that, because you were saying, do you ever narrow your focus and maybe look at something in a shorter time um, slice? Your huge knowledge help you with these smaller situations, or yeah, help you I mean, understand I these smaller situations. Yeah, I mean, I think that that it comes back to sort of understanding that there are a diversity of experiences in any given time period, and that's, I mean, that's what makes the present so complicated too. Because you hear people saying now, like everything is getting better, everyone is getting wealthier, and like I guess that's true in some aggregate, um, but at the same time, there's parts of the world where that's obviously not happening at all. And so I think that that's, that is something that you have to hold in your head to understand history, but also to understand where we're going, that there's you know, multiple timelines happening simultaneously. And I don't mean that some people are in the past and some people are in the present. I just mean that people are actually like, leading very, very different lives with incredibly different circumstances like on the same planet, um, which, is, which is really hard to account for. To go specifically to your Maya example, it's one thing to you know, the central part of the Maya, you know, really had a bad time. Let's not use the word collapse, but, <laughs> um, but it really it, and it emptied, and there are more people who are living there, you know, in 800 A.D. than there are now. But just north of them were people living, you know, speaking the same language, living you know, reasonably similar ways, suffering from the same drought, who did fine, and that tells you there's some difference there. And uh, the difference is the social arrangements, I think. And, uh, and often you can find, when you find these societies that something really bad happens, there's often a society right next to them that's not that different, that's doing okay. And you know, this is a gross generalization, but amazingly often, it seems to me, what happens in the societies that are, that are failing um, are elites hijacking the system and actually benefiting from the collapse. And there's a guy here, Darren Asimolyu, who's written a whole book about this, Why Nations Fail, um, which is, makes this argument much more eloquently than I just did. And so the you know, long perspective 
also tells you, you know, something that if you see this pattern happening again of elites hijacking the, uh, the wealth and productive capacity of the society in such a way that the bad things that are happening to everybody else are actually good for them, this is something to really watch out for. And uh, sometimes, as I read the newspaper, I wonder if this is something we should be watching out for ourselves. <laughs> I mean, just, just to put a little bit of torque on what was just said, first of all, one of the things that you have, you know, speaking sort of dispassionately as a historian, is when you have these disparate outcomes, you have a, a kind of natural experiment. You know, you, you can ask why, these, why there are such different outcomes. I mean, there's a lot of people who have studied Greenland through the Little Ice mm -hmm. Age and why the European settlements on it collapsed, but the uh, native peoples you know, really didn't see a, a major change in either their style of life or their, or their numbers. Um, and there are you know, a bunch of different explanations for it, but you have that lovely contained in a very small slice of time, which is helpful, and in a very small space, relatively small, I mean, in the, the case of the, Euro, the, 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 the Norse settlements on Greenland, very small uh, settlements. So you've got this sort of unusually for history nicely contained experiment. And this, I think you're describing something similar in the Maya. But in terms of craft in the writing of history, one, you know, there's, a, there's a, I think, I, I, there's something that you do where you, you, you try and shift focal length a lot. You try and see these things that have these big sweeps and you look over large scales of time and place. Um, but it's all nice storytelling unless you can go into very specific moments and times and sets of evidence and say, okay, if my view of this particular historical transaction is correct, you know, am I seeing it? What, 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 what connects to that in the as fine a grained account of the experiences of you know, individual people, small groups of people, institutions that you can fix in a time or a place? So I've I found in my own writing, I don't know if you, you two agree, that, that, that um, in some senses I try and find shorter and shorter periods of time and more and more constrained places to populate, as I make these more general arguments, to populate the narrative. Um, you can't do it with only one scale. If you just stay on the very fine-grained scale, you're telling a great story, and you may have wonderful characters, and you have all these interesting things, but you have no real way of gauging if it's, if it's um, uh, of historical significance, as it were, as opposed to you know, uh, a historical novel where you're, you're experiencing some of the vicarious thrill of trying to live through somebody else's um, alien eyes. Um, sir? Well, we may not be tottering on the brink, but many other species are. Uh, we're, what's unprecedented right now is that we have seven billion people on the planet, and by the middle of the uh, century, probably nine billion people. And we're seeing a mass extinction now that's probably uh, not been equals in the last 200 million years, uh, much of it due to human activity. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves in this type of an anthropocentric discussion here tonight uh, that there is a natural history as well as a social history and a technological his history. And we have to ask ourselves, how much do we value other species? How many are we allowing to let expire? Do we value species as much as Thoreau did or as much as the railroad does? Well, actually, the last mass extinction was about 65 million years ago, so, um, and we're nowhere near that level yet. Um, you really have to have like 75% or more species die out before you've got a real mass extinction on your hands, and we're not anywhere near that yet. We might be in a, a big extinction uh, phase right now, but we're not, we haven't reached mass extinction yet. We, we very well may. I, I definitely believe that we might be um, about to reach that uh, level. But what I would say is, if you're gonna talk on a species level, 
and talk about humans as a species and whether there's a precedent for the kinds of crap that we're doing, um, there absolutely is. Uh, there have been other invasive species just like humans at previous points in geological history that have been terrible, worse than us. Um, cyanobacteria polluted the entire planet with oxygen, which thanks for that, obviously. Um, <laughs> but it really sucked for all of the methane breathers at the time. They were not, uh, they did not, it did not turn out well for them. Um, and there's also uh, plenty of evidence that previous mass extinctions have been caused um, by invasive species uh, taking over various environments. Um, the Devonian mass extinction, which is about 250 million years ago, um, was likely caused by uh, invasive species. It's um, one possible explanation. No, no one is ever quite sure what uh, caused these previous mass extinctions that we've had, uh, but there, there are some indications uh, that that's part of what happened. So, um, so I can't answer the question about how much we care about animals, because that's obviously kind of a big other topic. Um, but in terms of humans having a precedent, yeah. Um, and the precedent is, is, looks bad, right? Because we see these patterns of invasive species um, actually maybe being part of what precipitates mass extinctions. Um, the big difference is that humans, unlike cyanobacteria, um, unlike the sharks that may have been involved in um, the Devonian mass extinction, um, humans appear to be relatively intelligent and able to plan for the future and able to figure out that we are changing the environment as we're doing it. We don't, it doesn't appear that previous species figured that out. We don't know for sure, uh, but probably it, they were not aware of what they were doing, but we are. Um, and so that is a, a historically unprecedented thing too. We're an invasive species that actually knows that we're invasive and actually knows that we are changing the environment in negative ways for other species on the planet. Um, and that actually weirdly gives me a little bit of hope um, because I think that we have a chance of doing something about it because we've actually figured it out. Um, we'll see. <laughs> there may be a collapse, but um, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Luke Yoquinto. I'm a science writer, uh, freelance, and at the MIT Age Lab. Um, and uh, I have a question. Uh, so the, the MIT Age Lab looks at um, a lot of population dynamics in, in a lot of countries. I think, as you know, populations are declining or failing to grow as fast. And I just, you know, I love this idea, this metaphor of, of collapse has been with, with us throughout history, but uh, it, it sounds like it was often a Malthusian collapse. We were always worried about running out of wood or running out of guano. And I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about the moments when um, populations were declining and if we can have any uh, insights from those moments. Well, you mean like when in the Americas after? after yeah, or, or, the, or the Black Death. Um, what you see in, often in, there's three sort of known pulses of large-scale reforestation in um, relatively recent human histories. And one after the Justinian Plague of 600, one after the Black Plague, and um, one after um, the Columbus Plague, I guess we can call it. <laughs> and, uh, the, um, and what they led to, um, in, so far as we know, um, you know, was the same phenomenon to a lesser, lesser or greater extent in which reforestation comes and you know, sucks carbon dioxide is followed by big spells of, of cold weather. Now that has to happen at a very large scale before you start to, to um, see the impacts. The other thing that happens is that um, all the survivors are much richer. Um, and 
so that the, you know, there's, the, there's a whole lot of historians who argue that um, what happened in, after the Black Plague, for instance, is there's many fewer workers around, and so even feudal lords had to start treating their workers well because otherwise they would move, and so wages went up, and there was a whole series of rebellions against this culminating in the Protestant, um, Protestantism. So that these population declines are, you know, in the past have really been associated with enormous changes. And just to complicate that a little, one of the things that happens after the Black Plague is you run out of workers, um, you, need to, you need to find ways to hang on to them, so you start compensating them, which is a milestone in the history of money and exchange. So there's a whole, you know, I don't think the Black Death caused capitalism, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but events that occurred in its wake are part of the history of capital, the prehistory of capitalism. So also part of the prehistory of the labor movement yep, too, because you absolutely. had peasants, you know, organizing, like you said, mm -hmm. having riots and or some people might call them protests. Maybe other people would call them riots, um, and uh, and got living wages or better wages. Okay, thanks, sir. I'm Phil Guerra from Sloan. Uh, one of the perplexing things about these kind of like big disruptive historical events or black swans is not that they're unexpected, but also the other side of the definition of a black swan is it's highly predictable in, in hindsight from the retrospective lens. Like, you know, looking back on it, you're like, oh, of course that would happen. So uh, the question here is, um, does, history, uh, do you, does history at all um, help us predict these things, or does it just show us the failure of prediction? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess. How, how dumb are we? <laughs> well, we do have a pretty good record of, or unmatched record of being poor predictors. <laughs> but at the, at the same time, I often feel if you take the long view, you sort of want to, you know, sky down. Um, and so, you know, particularly for people in, in, in business, I'm amazed, you know, I, I'm not that old and I have been through numerous examples of the business cycle and at every single one of them, there's people who write best-selling books saying, this time it's different. <laughs> and, um, and you sort of think like, or this time we have the business cycle licked and, and, and so forth. And wow, it's just never true. So I, I think that you, know, you can say that when you read those things, you know, there's people I know actually on, on, on Wall Street who says when that book times, when you see that book, it's time to get out of the market. Uh, <laughs> they're like leading indicators of collapse. Um, <laughs> that, that people are saying that everything is going to be great. And so there is that sense that, it, that there are these um, cycles whose exact duration cannot be you know, predicted, but whose existence um, are, are certain. Uh, I'm Jessica. I was an undergrad here, grad student, now staff, official lifer, I think, that makes me. Um, my question is sort of like a wild card. I try to uh, make sometimes ridiculous sense of the world by looking back at like random data points, right? So things like this guy has a skit on like, we were hunters and gatherers. That's why men are focused. They go into the store, they see the shirt they want, they walk back out. Women will walk in, they'll take inventory, they'll come back next week, they know what changed on the shelves, you know, this kind of like using what back, I don't know, whatever we have in history to understand who we are today. Um, 
Another one could be King Louis XIV was really short, so he would always make himself taller. So we still want to be taller and have this like weird hierarchy of the man being taller, and so that's still important to us somehow. That probably also has to do with being strong. But anyway, I guess uh, my question is, could each of you give me two random, if you have them at all, uh, two random sort of uh, things you've thought about that maybe you don't have verified, but you wonder if it's at all correlated with a reason for why we are that way we are today? I'll tell you one. I, 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 maybe I can answer this. I, maybe. Um, there's, because I was actually. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to have any validity. So there's a, there's a big argument going on now, an intellectual argument between people like Steven Pinker um, on one side and a bunch of um, anthropologists and archaeologists on the other side about whether human beings have an irreducibly violent nature. And then the argument that they make is things are getting better and better and better, and that in prehistory, life was just awful. And um, what's interesting is that we have almost no skeletal evidence sort of before the realm of agriculture. You know, the bones, just there's not that many bones. And so all the evidence stops, you know, or most of the evidence stops about 10,000 or 12,000 years ago. And so if you believe that people like Pinker and 10 or 12,000 years ago, life was incredibly violent. This is right after the Neolithic Revolution in agricultural societies. They were terrible. Um, <laughs> so was that a new thing, or was that something in, in our human nature? And um, sometimes I'm reading the news from Syria, I think like, oh, God, here we are, human nature again. And sometimes I, I think like, no, actually, there is so little evidence of, about this. And this would be an example of a, a, a question that I, I, I think would, history would be really interesting and worthwhile to, to, to know about. So that, that's sort of, I'm, I wonder what is you know what is that prehistory if we knew it would it, would it tell us about you know who we are. Um, I guess I I would point to something that I was talking about before with immigration, uh, which is that I think there's a lot of evidence, but of course we don't know for sure that humans uh, evolved in a state of immigration. Basically, that part of what we were doing when we were evolving. Um, was wandering around and leaving the areas where we first hung out and hunted and kind of spreading upward out of Africa into other continents and then eventually across the ocean. Um, and so I think, um, like your question about violence, I wonder if there's something in humans that makes us kind of want to wander and want to go to new places and whether we've kind of constructed a culture and a set of cultures that are kind of preventing that from happening and that that might be a bit of a problem. And my only reaction is to be sort of skeptical of the whole endeavor. It's so easy to make just so stories. Yeah, it's fun. Um, it's fun, um, and, yeah, it and fun. we all do it. Um, but when you know there are active fields of study represented at great institutions all around the country uh, where, they, where, where just so stories, I think, are taken much, much too seriously. And when you get to things like gender roles, or social hierarchy, or economic systems, and you construct a just-so story out of, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, the, the East India Company's directors figuring out this or that, you know, it's just, you can, you can justify, it's, it's, it's so easy to say history proves that what I want to be true is true. And you know, well, it does. It does, of course, <laughs> and that's why we do it. Especially if you're writing it. But it's also, I think, um, just to stick with being self-contradictory. Like, I totally agree with what mm. Tom is saying, and I think that there's a real 
um, danger in trying to say that we're doing certain things now because of how we evolved or because of how we were historically, because it does put us again in that kind of paralysis of saying like, oh, well, but we can't change. You know, I, we're just that way. You know, that's just, we are just violent um, or we are just wanderers. Um, and I think there's so much evidence that we can change and that maybe, you know, culture is so much more important than. Well, it's, it's not just that we can change, it's that almost anything you can imagine a human being or a human society doing as a way to make it through the day has been done. We aren't restricted to one choice in this is the way we are, therefore this is the way we will be. There are, you know, there's a huge decision space uh, of things that people have managed to make it through the day on. And, you know, it's nice to tell us stories to say that, that yes, in fact, uh, it is possible actually really to write an original creative work in Starbucks. That going to the coffee shop is not inevitably a way to pretend you're writing when you're not. <laughs> and somebody has done that. Most people don't. But if, you're, if you like drinking coffee in the morning and bringing your computer, tell yourself the story that you're writing the great you know, modern novel, and it'll make your day happier. Humans on the savanna were drinking coffee and writing. Abs and that's where it yes. comes from. Yeah. Yes, the, the, the great grasslands novel. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for a great panel. I wanted to bring us back to something you said right at the beginning, which I thought was so striking, that um, the most radical form of difference is historical difference, and how that makes us think about people in the past as, as other, right? Totally other than, than we. But at the same time, we're talking so much about the continuity of the past, and you guys keep saying, like, oh, we're contradicting ourselves. But actually, I just think you're just saying we need to balance those two things of recognizing alterity and recognizing continuity. And so I was wondering if you could talk about a point in your own research where you did, you did that or you flipped from one to the other and you were surprised you know, that you had been thinking of the past as the same, but then you flipped to alterity, but do you know what I mean? Like, I, I just thought that was such a striking, it's come across like throughout the whole panel and then in the questions too, that we're, we're, we're trying to balance that. I can give you a silly example. Um, okay. This summer, um, I went to um, Highland, Peru for a, a few weeks. And uh, um, so I was around Lake Titicaca, which is this huge lake up, up there, and um, in these villages. And I discovered that the men, these very macho guys, were king hell knitters. Um, and that you know, you part of your prowess as a guy was what kind of knitting you could do, and um, the, if your stitches were really tight, you know, <laughs> and, and and I had guys telling me essentially that their penises were extremely large. And you could tell by their knitting, and <laughs> I and, believe it. Yeah, and and you know, on the one hand. You know, I thought, oh God, guys are always talking about this. On the other hand, knitting. And <laughs> <laughs> so that's a perfect example of how often, you know, you're right, it, is, it, it isn't so much that it's contra contradictory, yeah. is that the familiar and the strange um, are, um, people find all kinds of ways to express um, something that apparently the need for guys to um, boast about their private parts is <laughs> is the universal perhaps and the uh, and the and but the most amazing variety of ways that they can find to um, express this primal need. <laughs> um, I'll give a, an example that's also uh, based on a place that I traveled recently, which is that I went to um, the archaeological site of Çatalhöyük, which is a Neolithic um, settlement, large settlement uh, in Turkey, central Turkey, and um, it's kind of the mega city of its day. 
Uh, it was built at a time when there weren't really cities, but it's believed that possibly uh, you know, a thousand or more people lived in this one settlement, which is really big when you consider that most of the settlements were like 200 people. And um, so it, it's a very different city from what we would have now. There's no streets. Um, it's kind of a honeycomb structure. All the houses are kind of squished up together and people entered through their roof. Um, but at the same time, uh, every house had you know, a fireplace and we know that they uh, cooked soup. We, you know, people have examined pottery shards and looked at the chemical signatures, and so they were cooking soup in their in their hearths. And um, and I kept thinking, you know, it, it's just like now. Like everybody has a kitchen, and even though it seems so different, um, but one of the things that they did was that they they buried their ancestors in their floor under their beds, um, which was really alien to me, and is I think for many people in the West just sounds like totally disgusting, like you don't put the dead under your bed. Um, and they slept on kind of raised platforms and pla that were plastered over and so they would literally dig up their beds and put, you know, the, um, once their bones had been blanched, they'd kind of stick them in and they kind of unbury them and they sometimes would trade uh, skull skulls. They like to trade skulls. Um, and, um, and it just, it was that same thing where it's, it's a radically different culture. Like you have to imagine, like what was it like to think it's completely normal that I buried my mom under my bed. Like, that's just what you do. Everybody does that. Like, and if you don't do it, gross. Like, why, why is your mom not under your bed after she died? Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's so similar to like how we are now. Like, people were cooking and hanging out and um, throwing their garbage in the alley behind their house. Like, that was a big thing that everybody did. Um, and so it, it's just that, that's that moment of flipping back and forth. And you, you have, I feel like, it's so important, and this is something that I like in your writing so much, is that you have to respect that complete difference and not try to say, it's just like us today. You have to be able to say, like, no, it really was freaking different. Um, and at the same time, we can still learn from it because it is this other uh, experiment that's unlike our own. The, the one thing I'd add to that is um, my father was a historian, historian of China. and. Um, he started one essay late in his life where he said, uh, you know, people have long, historians have long thought about the distinction between history, the history that people make, and history, the history that people write. And, you know, the past is its own country, but we write about the past not out of con their concerns, but of ours. And so one of the things you have to do when you read history is remember that the, the, a good historian is trying to make the best possible account of whatever they're studying. Um, but the concerns and the questions and the sort of framework for, uh, from understanding is what we care about. What that person writing, those readers, that, that community of, of people interested in this piece of the past. And that's, what makes, that's one of the things that makes reading history, both you know, writing, writing history, it's not just transcribing what happened back then, it's a creative act, but it also means that reading history is a creative act. You have to actually exercise you know, attention and will and, and mental construction to try and figure out how you get through your presumptions, your interest, and into that world. Hi, um, my name's Reka. I'm CMS before there was a W, 05. Um, your loss. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Annalie, you said something early on um, that was kind of relatively in passing, I think, when you were talking about Thoreau and the railroad doesn't ride us mm -hmm. um, and how technology doesn't shape us. I, I, at least that's how I heard it. And it sounded very um, 
very uncomplicated. And I wanted to hear from both of you a little bit more texture around our current technological moment and how you see this and how, who's driving what. Because I think that it is right now such a major source of anxiety and, and utopianism um, and the lens through which a large portion of our society is looking at the future. And I think, um, I don't think you meant to say that humans shape technology and technology doesn't have any impact back on us, that, that that's how it sounded. And so I would just love to hear a little more texture around that. Yeah. Um, because no, I it, think it's, I, it's I definitely, major. yeah, but sorry, go ahead. No, no that, okay. that's fine. Um, no, I definitely think it's a dialectical relationship, right? That humans are, are you know, creating technology, but then of course technology shapes our experience of our social lives, especially now, and it, ex it shapes our experience of the economy, and it shapes our um, ability to, to produce things. Um, but uh, what I was pushing back against, and the reason why I was sort of picking on that quote from Thoreau about the railroad rides us, is that I think there is a temptation, especially right now, because we do live in a world of rapidly changing technology, or at least companies would like us to believe that it's rapidly changing because like why else are you going to buy the new nexus um but uh so don't buy it i guess um but uh <laughs> um but i think you know th there is i think there's too much of that simplistic idea that like that we are shaped by technology and what i want to do in my work and what i hope people can do when they hear that and when they read that on tech blogs say is think about okay, fine, if technology is shaping me, who is shaping that technology that's shaping me, right? Like, who are the people behind marketing like a million different mobile devices to me and trying to tell me that like somehow it's like a giant step forward that like the Pixel now has like a tablet that pulls off from the keyboard? Like, is that, you know, who, whose interest is it that's being served by me thinking that that's a big revolutionary change? The power relationship between there is the slice of society that are the innovators and the marketers of the innovation. And then there's so many people out there who really do feel like they're being ridden by the technology by simply being feeling like being made to feel like they need it or actually needing it because of work or so society. So just also is it possible that some people feel that they are being ridden by technology I, and some people are riding them. Are riding them. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I think people absolutely do feel that way, and I agree with you that it's a source of tremendous anxiety. And of course, you know, our social lives have been radically altered by the kinds of technologies we have access to, like having a computer in your pocket or communicating with your friends on whatever social media platform you're using. Um, but I think that it's important, like I said, to always remember that it's still a social relationship. Um, and it's people being ridden by people. And you know, yes, there's these technologies that are part of what we're trading with each other and part of what uh, the most powerful corporations in the world um, are trying to entice us into thinking are like the most important thing ever. Um, but you know, it's never just, I, I, I think there's always a story behind that, that feeling of like, I am being ridden by my Android device. Um, you know, who's writing me? Like, there's people that made Android. Um, there's choices that Google made about Android and how it's going to be marketed and what kinds of devices are going to use it and um, how, whether it's going to be an open OS or a closed one and how I'll, you know, anyway, I could bore you to death with Android. But, um, but I think it's important, like, that when we think, it, when we have those thoughts, 
about how we're being ridden by technologies, that we think about all of the social relationships that go into making those technologies and that go into making us feel like we're being ridden, like what's really at stake there. Um, and without erasing the fact that, of course, yeah, technology changes us all the time, like medical technology made it possible for me to be alive and probably for many of you to be alive. Um, and that's a real genuine change, like that's awesome um, in every sense of the word. Uh, but at the same time, tech is always embedded in, in social relationships of power, for example. Uh, and some people are getting rich off of your obsession with Android or my obsession with Android. Um, and uh, and some people are are not. So. Okay, I think we have we actually just have time for one last question. Okay, so speaking of being shaped by technology, and you're the catastrophe person, I think, right? So maybe I'll address the question to you a little bit. Um, and I want to preface this by saying I'm an eternal optimist. I swear I am. Um, <laughs> any scenario that you see that doesn't end in the evolutionary process and end of homo sapiens at the hands of super artificial intelligence? Yes. <laughs> yeah. How uh, we're done. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Back, Plus one to that. <laughs> um, in the early 1980s when I was, you know, starting out, uh, I was um, sent by science to, which I was running for, to write about the wonderful advances in artificial intelligence that were being made by the AI lab. And um, this is, at the time, the AI lab was being consumed by its fight between the two companies that it sort of split into. I forget what their names were. Um, and um, I, I was just completely baffled. Nothing, nobody there was doing anything that I could see that in any way remotely related to actual artificial intelligence. Um, they're, they're, they're fighting over Lisp. You know, they're fighting over these, 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 these languages. But every single person there told me that AI was, was going to come before the year 2000. It was an article of complete faith. And uh, I, I, I eventually wrote to Iter. I said, I can't write this. I'm going to make them look like idiots. And uh, you know, it's mean. Um, so I, you know, eventually I wrote about the fight over Lisp or, or, or something like this. So, um, <laughs> So, you know, so I, I gotta say, it, it's dawned on me as I've you know, repeatedly attempted to cover something about artificial intelligence, that nobody involved in artificial intelligence actually, they all talk about artificial intelligence, but what they're actually doing is making something that's super good at one particular purpose. You know, um, and I don't think actually anybody wants artificial in, in intelligence actually when you look at what they want, because we have nine or seven billion intelligences around here. We have the people are really good at that. So what you want are these machines that can do things that people can't. Um, and so I'm, I'm just extremely skeptical of the, uh, you know, I, I would like to know what this would consist of, except for some sort of magical invocation of, you know, Skynet. Um, that would be that somewhere you would actually get to it from the projects that are now being done. Um, on the planet that doesn't involve some magical self-evolution. And so that, that's um, one reason, I think, to be this. The other is that, again, this is a picture of like, you know, a terrible thing happening in, in, in the future. And people are notoriously bad at um, figuring, at, at making, those, at making predict predictions that actually hold true. And so the mere fact that this is held, and in fact, particularly academic elites, 
um, have a terrible record in this. And the mere fact that um, this is like the Wall Street guys who are saying that th this time it's different. Um, so I think all those, you know, obviously you can't predict the future, but all those tell you that in the past, these statements have been made and they so far have always been wrong. And I mean, also just to, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. And I think also the fact that the uh, predictions about what AI will do to us, the fact that it sounds so similar to these fantasies of Armageddon that we've been having, uh, you know, since humans have started telling stories about the end times, um, always makes me suspicious. When it's it a vengeful sounds, God. Yeah, whenever it sounds so similar to like all the angels will come down and either they're going to elevate us to this state of, of bliss or they're going to you know, enslave us permanently forever in a hell, you know, hellfire. Um, I mean, it sounds so similar to what people say about what AI will do that it just, it, it comes to feel like it's just part of this ongoing mythology that we tell ourselves that's been enhanced by these present day anxieties about technology writing us. It, it fits very nicely with that, that fear that we are going to be enslaved to the technology. And again, I think anytime you hear that, you always have to ask, well, what, what would it, would it, who's really, what are we really worried about? Are we really worried about a machine enslaving us or are we really just worried about being enslaved again by other humans? Because do you know who enslaves humans? Humans. There's an, yeah. <laughs> That's we, and that is history, people. <laughs> um, and, and you know, it's funny that we keep projecting it onto our technology and saying, it's not us, you know, the technology is gonna be enslaving us. Well, maybe actually this is an anxiety about how slavery is gonna return in a big way, and maybe we should be thinking about that. Where can we buy your books? Outside in the hall. <laughs> we are, the, 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 us talking to you, part of the program of the evening is now over. I want to thank all of, both our guests, uh, Charles Mann and Anneli Nowitz. Um, I want to thank you guys for showing up. I want to encourage you to check out the books that are outside and the signing that will take place for those of you wise enough to make that decision. <laughs> and I would like you ask, uh, I would like to ask you now once again to, uh, Thank Charles and Annalise. <laughs>